Good evening and welcome to the Locked On Winnipeg Jets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host, Harrison Lee, an avid Winnipeg Jets fan and an online blogger. You can follow me on Twitter at HLLivingLocal and follow our podcast Twitter at LO underscore Winnipeg Jets. As always, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to like, follow, and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform of choice, including Apple, Spotify, Google, and the Megaphone app. Subscribing is free and keeps you up to date on the latest and greatest in Winnipeg Jets news and analysis. On tonight's episode, we will be continuing some of our NHL offseason review coverage of some Central Division teams, which we've already covered a number of them, including Winnipeg, Colorado, and St. Louis, just to name a few. So be sure to check out previous episodes if you missed any of those earlier teams. Tonight, we will be taking a look at a couple of more common ones, including Minnesota, Dallas, and our most hated rivals with the Preds. And actually, let's start in Nashville and see what exactly Nashville did to try and overhaul their roster over this offseason. Generally speaking, the Preds actually did not do that much. I think that this is a team that, for the most part, is kind of set in its ways. They think that they have the winning formula. They're not really likely to change a whole lot. And so at this point, what they're trying to figure out is how to make some improvements without breaking the bank. And I think that that, for this team, is very difficult because, for the most part, they've always gotten by with a really good back end and some very talented middle six players, even if they're missing some of that really elite top-end finishing talent. Like, you've got tremendous forwards like Philip Forsberg, and when Victor Arvidsson was very good, you know, obviously Arvey was on that list, but of course, these guys don't tend to produce huge point totals because they're on a team that doesn't really have a whole lot of offensive centers. In terms of a lot of offensive support, the Preds just don't tend to have that much in terms of goal scoring. I mean, Josie was one of the top three scorers on their team this season. I think Forsberg was like first or second this year. And Philip, for the most part, has consistently been one of the top scorers on his team, even though he's not really posting anywhere above like seven. 70 to 80 points. What that kind of tells you is that for Nashville, goal scoring has always been at something of a premium. This is a team that seems to like to control play and often get very strong defensive efforts and some pretty decent goaltending, but overall I'm just not really sure about the sustainability of this particular model. To try and solve some of their off-season woes, they have made a few acquisitions, which I, I can say some of them are probably better than others. Obviously, one of the biggest departures from their roster, and you could say an acquisition of cap space, is buying out Kyle Turris, who then signed with the uh, Edmonton Oilers on a much cheaper deal. Now, as far as Turris is concerned, I really feel like the Preds signed him to a long-term contract, not exactly expecting him to be more like a middle six center. That said, I am very puzzled at the fact that when LaViolette was still the head coach, you know, Turris really kind of got the short end of the stick. I know that as far as Kyle's offensive production is concerned, he was a little bit underwhelming. You know, he, he tended to perform a little bit more like a third-line center, which is not exactly what they signed him to be. I think that they expected him to easily anchor that second-line center role right behind Ryan Johansson. Of course, that didn't really pan out, and Turris has mostly been declining over the past couple of seasons, but I also kind of wonder why Turris would get benched for some of the more minor league kind of players that they brought up and, and put in his position. So, you know, Kyle ended up needing a bit of a change of scenery, but I also feel like the Preds kind of squandered what he did provide. As part of their other acquisition process, they've also traded Nick Benino for Luke Kunin, and Minnesota ended up getting a couple of picks in exchange for sending some of their picks and Kunin over to the, uh, the Preds. And for me, this trade was bad when it happened because Nashville essentially got you know, a decent-ish, like, bottom six center with a couple of picks, but they were lower picks than what they sent with Benino up to the Wild. I'll talk more about why this particular trade ends up benefiting Minnesota more when we cover the Wild's improvements and how they handled this offseason, but suffice it to say, the Preds really didn't get much in the way of Coonan and the two picks that they brought in. 
Kunin at this stage of his career, he is talented, and I think he was a first-round draft pick, if I recall correctly, but the thing with Luke is that he's not really shown to be much more than like a middle six to bottom six center. He certainly has some offensive skill and upside, but I think it's very limited, and it's not really coalescing in a way that I would say he's got top six potential. He might not even really be a great third liner either. Considering Benino, even in this late stage of his career, is already better than Kunin, and even though he is on the older side and, and is not really developing, I feel like you should have just kept Benino and kept your two uh, your upper round picks that you had, because I really don't feel like this is actually an improvement. I would say that even though the likelihood of you know 37th overall and 70th overall turning into NHLers is still relatively low, when we talk about the Wild, there's a new approach to the way that they did some of their draft picks this year that leads me to believe that both of the picks that they made are likely to make more of an NHL impact than Kunin is. Aside from that, they made a couple of free agent signings, some of which I like more than others. They brought in Matthew Benning and Mark Borowiecki for a total of around $6 million over two seasons. Benning's contract is just, uh, it looks like $1 million a year, and Borowiecki is at $2 million a year, which is actually very good value if you're looking for a shutdown third pairing with puck-moving ability. Obviously, Borowiecki is on the older side, and Benning has had some injury concerns over the past couple of seasons, but the two together should be a very solid third pairing and somebody that you could trust as running maybe even a second pairing if things get really dicey. I think for the kind of value and term that they signed both of those guys to, it's a great value contract, and I feel like they really can't lose as far as like a $3 million third pairing is concerned. They also signed Nick Cousins for two years at $3 million, so about one and a half per season, which is not too bad. Cousins is a very good fourth-line center, occasionally a third-line center with some upside. So, you know, they definitely like their bottom six players with skill. That's something that they have consistently done, and I, I suppose, you know, Cousins definitely fits that mold. The other guy that they brought in is Brad Richardson, a right wing for one year at $1 million. And Richardson at this stage of his career has very limited upside. I think he's mostly like a depth forward who can occasionally score goals. He was fairly okay for the Arizona Coyotes, but again, I don't really feel like he moves the needle that much. As far as outgoing players are concerned, they did trade away Austin Watson, which I think is a good move for the organization. Personal issues aside, Watson is just a very bad forward at this stage of his career, and getting, you know, even a fourth-round pick for him ain't bad. As far as their two main draft picks are concerned, they picked up Yaroslav Askarov and Luke Evangelista in the first and second rounds, respectively. Askarov is a bit surprising because, of course, they've got Yusa Saros in that, and I guess what remains of uh, Pekka Rinne, but as far as Askarov is concerned, he's an interesting pick. I think he might be one of the most talented goaltenders they've drafted in some time, and clearly they see him as their goalie of the future. Evangelista is another talented forward, somebody who has potential as like a top six scoring wing. He's done pretty well with the London Knights. I'm not 100% sure if he has all of the tools and consistency to be like a high-end top six threat, but as far as being a pretty solid goal scorer who should fit that system and be a nice scoring right wing, I feel like the Preds are, are going to be happy with that. There maybe were one or two players that you could have pointed to as being potentially better value picks, but aside from that, I don't think that that's really too much to be concerned about. I think what does come off as a little bit of a miss is that, you know, one of the picks that they traded away to Minnesota ended up being for a guy who I think is a, is a better all-around player and somebody that we'll talk about when we cover the Minnesota Wild in just a bit here. Like the other teams, I am going to give a letter grade for this offseason, and I feel like Nashville deserves like a B-. minus. I wouldn't say that they made any particularly great acquisitions. They did cut some salary, I guess, in terms of getting rid of tourists, and they picked up a couple of pretty decent and underrated depth players and guys like, you know, Mark Borietsky, Matt Benning, and Nick Cousins. But as far as actually getting really franchise-defining players, 
The only one I could point to is Yaroslav Askarov, and I feel like he's a pretty decent amount of weight, maybe like one to two seasons. They kind of need more immediate top six help, and I'm just not sure where it's going to come from. Speaking of teams that maybe need some kind of a boost, up next we'll take a little bit of a look at the Dallas Stars and see if, in fact, their roster is good to go for a potential cup run again, or if they actually do need some improvements going forward. Before we get there though, I thought you should hear a little bit more about the recent Built Bar relaunch. For longtime Locked On Jets fans, I know some of you at least have probably heard me espouse the greatness that is the Built Bar, and if you aren't familiar with Built Bars, they're a protein bar alternative that's more like a candy bar. It's got a nice dark chocolate exterior and a soft chewy interior. I personally really like the mint chocolate and raspberry flavors from their 12 original flavors, but all of them are very good, and you can try all of them by picking up a cool variety box. Like any great company though, Built Bar isn't content to rest on its laurels, and is back with six new flavors as well as a new and improved formula. You can sink your teeth into caramel brownie, cookies and cream, cherry barcia, lemon almond cheesecake, carrot cake, and apple almond crisp. And just like the 12 original flavors, you can enjoy these without any of the guilt. Most Built Bars clock in at anywhere from 200 calories or less, 5 grams of net carbs, and between 15 to 19 grams of protein. They're low calorie, low sugar, high in protein, and high in fiber, so they're perfect for weight loss or weight maintenance programs. To get started, go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code LOCKEDON and you'll get 20% off your next order. Again, use promo code LOCKEDON for 20% off at BuiltBar.com. Welcome back to the Locked On Winnipeg Jets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. This episode, we have been taking a look at more Central Division rivals and seeing how their off-seasons stack up. You know, which of these teams have improved, have any of them gotten worse, or are some teams staying the same? And as far as teams that are staying the same, I think Dallas kind of falls under this category. The Stars are coming off of a pretty tough Stanley Cup loss to the Tampa Bay Lightning, which isn't exactly shocking. I mean, the Lightning were one of the best teams in the NHL, and they have been for the past couple of seasons. They've gotten close to Cup glory, but not really close enough to where you felt like they were actually going to pull it off. So, all due credit to the Tampa Bay Lightning for actually closing the deal this time. I think that for for the Stars, their approach is to really not change anything if it ain't broke. You know, they're not really a team that's rushing to make a lot of off-season acquisitions. They had a number of expiring contracts that they needed to figure out, and you might say that they locked up some of their so-called internal rentals, which I think was a Kyle Dubas quote. Really funny one, but obviously some teams do treat players who are on expiring deals as internal rentals if they're not really convinced that anyone on the free agent market's going to be better. In this go-around, we actually saw a couple of extensions. Andre Sequeira has re-signed for $3 million for just two seasons, which I think is a perfect term. You pay him about a million and a half per season. I think that that's a great value contract. Sakara can play potentially top four minutes. I think for where he is at this stage of his career, more comfortably, like higher end third pairing minutes would make the most sense. He is getting up there in years and he does have a bit of an injury history, so you have to manage his time a little bit carefully. The bigger contract extensions include Anton Hudobin and Radek Foxa. Hudobin has signed for three years at $10 million, so around 3.33 a season, which for what he's done is absolutely fantastic. I think increasingly teams are starting to figure out that committing a lot of long-term money to high-end goalies tends to be a little bit of a dicey prospect. We've seen Matt Murray, who at one point looked great, to end up being a bit of a pumpkin over the past couple of seasons, and I feel like that sort of model doesn't really fit both an era in which we are starting to hit a flat cap because of COVID and just how modern goaltending seems to work. Goalies are really hard to figure out. There's a lot of volatility and variance with goaltending performance year over year, and what ends up happening is that a lot of free agent goalies who are often veterans and maybe on the older side can have seasons where they're really good or at best league average, and it's still enough to get teams by because they have the goal scoring to back it up. Hudobin is kind of on the upper end of these veteran journeyman players, and I feel like as far as a goalie free agent is concerned, this is a very strong contract. Hudobin has always been very underrated, and now it seems like Dallas feels he is the man in net or at least until they kind of figure out what to do with Ben Bishop. 
Bishop was at one point the starter. I forget if he's injured or if, if there's another reason he's been sidelined, but obviously Hudobin kind of stole the show a bit, and I feel like Hudobin's probably got the starting job next season. I'm not 100% sure how that's going to work or if they're going to do like a timeshare. Either way, context aside, this is a good contract, one that I think fits the way the modern NHL is moving in terms of goalie free agent signings and a nice fit with Dallas. Roddick Foxa has also extended for five years at $16.25 million, and for a bit over $3 million a season, what you're getting is somebody who's basically like Andrew Kopp, but for Dallas, and I feel like Foxa is very underappreciated, he's a great play-driving center, he can be used in a lot of different positions, and he's also very good at, you know, multiple situations, whether it's even strength, I think he might have even had some penalty kill time. When it comes to really strong value middle sixers, Foxa is like the ideal kind of player, and I feel like locking him up for five years isn't exactly the worst idea. It's hard to find guys who do this kind of stuff and actually put up pretty decent scoring rates. Foxa is 100% that kind of guy and he can actually be trusted with top six minutes too. So as far as a good value extension is concerned, Dallas did well here. On the draft side, we do have a couple of very intriguing prospects that Dallas picked up. In the first round, they picked up Maverick Bork in the end of the, uh, almost the end of the first round at 30th overall. And Bork is somebody who I actually profiled a little bit on an earlier podcast when talking about a Jets pick potentially in the later parts of the, the first round, just because at the time I thought the Jets really didn't have a top 10 pick. Bork is a very offensively talented center. He is a little bit of a project. He does have some things that he needs to work on. But as far as like a really good skill set, being a very smart player, and just generally being an offensive menace in the uh, attacking area, he's able to create a lot for himself and his teammates. I don't think he possesses like the world's most elite release, but as far as being a, a general offensive threat and somebody who creates space, I feel like Bork is the exact kind of player you want to pick up. The second guy I'll talk about is a little bit more of a wild card, and that is Antonio Stranges, who was drafted in the fourth round at 123rd overall. Stranges is one of those guys that I've heard two very different tales about. On the one hand, he's an elite skater. He has some of the best edge work in this entire draft. He can be very fast. He's very agile. He's got really good lateral skating, and he's got a nice first accelerated step. But as far as the rest of his game is concerned, I think that there's a lot of concern about whether he's able to put all of these tools to bear and, and get the full value in creating offense. You know, Stranges is, is somebody who struggled to produce at the kind of clip that you'd expect for a first-round prospect, and there's a very clear reason why he fell as far as he did. He is a, a very much a project, and I feel like Dallas would be an interesting team to take a punt on him, because if he is able to work on, you know, his offensive instincts, his ability to create space, and marrying that with his elite skating, you might have an interesting middle six C there. It's just going to take a while to reach that point, and I feel like Dallas maybe needs a little bit more of an immediate impact, but that's why a guy like Maverick Bork is great, because Bork probably won't be in juniors for too much longer. All in all, I will give Dallas like a solid B. I think that they didn't really make any great acquisitions because they just haven't needed to. So they kind of went with their draft picks. They've got a cup run under their belt. They've got a few important players locked up for the foreseeable future. I would say that that's pretty solid. It's not great. It's not like the world's greatest offseason, but it's solid enough. This is a team that's probably going to have to stick with its current formula and not go off the beaten path too much. I could see them at some point maybe looking at a longer-term top-six investment somewhere, but I don't really know who they'd pick up for that role. Speaking of teams that are looking for a top-six injection, up next we'll take a look at the Minnesota Wild, who maybe have the most intriguing offseason of any team so far. Welcome back to the Locked on Winnipeg Jets podcast. We are entering the final stretch of our coverage tonight of some off-season acquisitions for teams in the Central Division, and specifically teams that have maybe gone through a bit of an overhaul or just general improvements. 
We're finishing off with a look at the Minnesota Wild, who have had a very puzzling offseason when you look at it in the total view, because there are a lot of things that they've done right, and some things that are kind of strange. Let's start with the not-so-great first. They traded away Eric Stahl for Marcus Johansson, which in my mind is just a little bit of a strange move. I feel like Johansson, if they're going to try him as a center, isn't really equipped for that, generally speaking. I don't think that he would handle that transition all that well. And like Eric Stahl just seems like a guy that you want in your locker room as a leader. So maybe there's something else going behind the scenes and that's the reason that he was let go. Either way, kind of an odd move. Doesn't really move the needle either way, but maybe they felt that Johansson was for some reason a better fit. Now, as far as getting rid of some contracts that maybe they could do without, I feel like Devin Dubnik and Ryan Donato being moved out is fine. I think Dubnik getting sent to the San Jose Sharks, not the worst. They kind of pay the Sharks to take this contract on, but I think, again, that's fine. You kind of want to get rid of this. And, like, obviously, this is not really a, a trade in which Minnesota is looking to get a huge return. They just want Dubnik's money off the books, and I think it's a sensible move all around. In terms of contract extensions, of course, they did re-sign uh, Jonas Brodin a couple of weeks ago to seven years at $42 million. I think I talked about that as being, like, a, a decently expensive price for what he brings, which I like his defensive impact. I think that he is, like, a bond top four shutdown D. It's just kind of hard to quantify, you know, in terms of total impact on the ice, is he worth that contract? It's a little bit pricey. Oddly, though, we also saw Carson Soucy get a three-year 8.25 million contract extension, which at the time I thought was actually going to translate to something similar for DeMello. DeMello ended up signing for a lesser deal, which I, I think the Jets saved a good deal of money on that. But the Susie extension strikes me as a little bit expensive, so not sure I'm in love with that as much, but, you know, it's not the worst. It's not like a contract that they can't move. I just don't know about paying a guy who's like a, maybe a number 5 or 4D that much money, I don't know. The only other free agent that, you know, the, the Wild ended up bringing in was Cam Talbot for three years at $11 million, which is fine, I guess, at short term. It's not that expensive. He's a warm body in net. It does the trick. Nothing to write home about. But as far as the draft is concerned, which is where, you know, Minnesota basically cleaned up, the Wild have completely turned around their prospect pool. They came away with a massive haul, including Marco Rossi, Damon Hunt, Paul Novak, and Murat Kuznutinov. And on the blue line, they also added Ryan O'Rourke. So this was an incredibly deep draft for the Wild. They got a ton of great prospects. Rossi, of course, leads the entire pack by a country mile. I mean, he's amazing. But Kuznutinov is a fantastic center and somebody who has not only a really strong engine, but perhaps quite a bit of underrated skill and, and could be a really effective two-way offensive threat. On the back end, Damon Hunt and O'Rourke could prove to be really good quality NHL puck-moving D. I just circle back to the fact that they managed to get Marco Rossi at ninth overall, which is pretty crazy. I mean, Rossi for me was easily one of the top five prospects in this year's class. I think Cole Perfetti is right there with him. They both have a very different approach to the center position, which is why Rossi in a lot of ways is an incredibly intriguing prospect. He is somebody who likes to attack space. And he's such a shifty skater. I think the closest way I could think about the way that he takes on individual defenders is a little bit like Lionel Messi. Not necessarily on the same talent tier because no one is quite like Messi, but in the way that he likes to draw a defender to himself and then beat him with a nice little shimmy, a, a bit of a quick pivot on, on the puck while he's, you know, carrying the puck and in possession, and then he just sort of dances around opponents. Rossi is a really intriguing player, especially with what he could become at the NHL level. He's a points magnet in the CHL, and I do not anticipate that changing. I think Rossi is prime for superstardom. I love him as a prospect, and I feel like Minnesota overall, you know, given their offseason, 
I will say probably an A minus. I think some of the signings I was a little bit questionable about. Nothing too too crazy. Most of their trades were not really you know amazing, but they they did a couple of good deals. Like the Benino deal was pretty nice. They got uh, they ended up getting Kuznutinov with one of the picks from Nashville. So obviously that trade panned out great. They swapped out and you know a younger center who at one point was a highly touted prospect, maybe not so much at the NHL level, and perhaps brought in somebody with more talent. I know that, like, as far as the draft is concerned, that, you know, maybe I'm weighting it a little bit heavily, but I have to say that given where Minnesota's prospect pool is, what their long-term plan looks like, and, and how they manage this offseason, I feel like an A- minus is fair. I think that they have really improved long-term. They're going to be a dangerous team in the future. All in all, just a pretty good offseason so far. With that, that is going to wrap up our Central Division offseason reviews. On our next episode, perhaps we'll take a look at the Pacific Division and see how they're doing. Before you log off, be sure to check out the Locked On National Podcast hosted by Sarah Avampato. I thank you so much for listening. Have a great night, and as always, go Jets go!